The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I might be able to say this, buckle your seatbelts, because this might be a little bit bumpy. It certainly has been for me for the last couple of weeks of looking at this passage, and if you're a father or a mother or a person who loves discipleship, I want to bring you into my level of conviction. This has been a great, insightful journey that the Lord has taken me through studying this passage, and it's something I've been looking at for years, and it's something that is so penetrating and convicting and encouraging that I want to share that with you in our exposition as we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. Moses has just given the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, listen up. This is important. And then he defines who God is. The Lord our God is Yahweh. The Lord is one. He's unique. He's special. He is one and only, the one and only God. It's very interesting that immediately after this great commandment, he turns to apply it. His first command is the one that Jesus said is the greatest command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your being, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And we noted that that's who you are on the inside, who you are on the outside, and everything you touch and own in your possession. He continues the application. Now, you could say that in Moses' mind, the way that we were to apply, remember the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, the great Shema in chapter 6, the great command to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, Before we even get to turn to do anything else, he wants to make sure that that command is captured, put into a a form and a formula, into a package that we now pass on to the next generation. You've heard it over and over, but let me reiterate again. The scriptures are very clear that you have a faithful generation, and that faithful generation is faithful as long as they pass on what they know to the next generation. But if they don't pass that on to the second generation, the second generation is a forgetful generation, and the third generation is a wicked generation. That cycle plays out over and over and over in the scriptures. We are always on the edge of the very cycle, either beginning or being broken. So now Moses comes after the great Shema and the great commandment to verse 7 and says, you shall teach them, that's the great commandment to, uh, and statutes and all that God has regulated, to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, you walk by the way, you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates this is god's pattern for familial discipleship this is what god has designed so that truth is passed from one generation to the next and that generation to the next all the way down to what we hold in our convictions foundation on which doctrine is built is our conviction to and our commitment to 
biblical authority. Is that fair to say? Doctrine is built on what God said. What God has said is contained in the Bible, only in the Bible and all in the Bible. We believe that the Bible is that book with three eyes we've always talked about, right? It's inspired, God breathed. It's inerrant with no errors because it was inspired. And it is infallible because it's inspired and inerrant. But sometimes that conviction is incomplete unless it's also commensurate with application and with implication. It's not enough just to believe right things. In fact, James says the devil believes and he shudders. Holding things to be true doesn't change your life. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we know? Didn't we do? Look at us. We acted in your name and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. A mere knowledge of doctrine only gets you so far. Doctrine that's known and not applied, especially in the Hebrew mindset, is unknown at all. It's just a curiosity. This has to do with what I would call over-applying or under-applying Scripture. Let me explain what I mean. You could have a context where you, you read the Bible, you understand doctrine, and you could under-apply it. This happens when we neglect to act on things. We know that things are true, and we don't act, them, act on them. Then there's over-applying. This happens when we try to make the Bible say something or mean something that it doesn't say or it doesn't mean. Let me give you some examples. The Bible says that we are to let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouths. Ephesians 4, Right? Yet how easy is it to justify our unwholesome words in the midst of an argument with a family member or someone we love? In that situation, we're under-applying. We know what the Bible says. I mean, do any of us not know that the Bible says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth? We know that. Yet in the moment of passion and an argument and in frustration, especially with a brother, a sister, a mom, or dad, or spouse... We can let those things fly, and that little voice of let no unwholesome word is pushed to the side. And in that context, we underapply. The Bible says it, but we don't do with it what we're supposed to. Then there's over-applying, like keeping the Sabbath on Saturday. That would be over-applying. The Bible says to honor God by worshiping Him and and uh, having a day of recreation and uh, a day of rest on the Sabbath. That's Saturday. That's the seventh day of the week. And we have some Sabbatarians who believe that you should honor that law today, even though it's not repeated in the New Testament. That would be over-applying Scripture. The text before us on discipleship has been the victim of both under- and over-application. Let me explain to you what I mean. Both of these are wrong applications. This text is about parents, particularly fathers, taking the responsibility of discipling and instructing children that God has given us to know God and his word. Pretty simple, isn't it? One of the ways it's been wrongly attributed is like a justification for homeschooling. I'm not against homeschooling. I know I know homeschool people who are nice people. I know homeschool people who aren't. I know public school, people who, public school people who are and who aren't. This is not a statement about homeschooling, but I've heard people say that Deuteronomy 6 is a, a way to teach us that we need to do homeschooling. I've had people argue very hard that this is what this passage is about. 
The original audience, however, to Moses, that Moses was addressing uh, had no concept of homeschooling and home classrooms. This is, there's nothing in Deuteronomy 6 about reading and writing and arithmetic. Nothing. I've heard this section uh, applied like that, and it's just a wrong over-application. But frankly, the over-application doesn't bother me as much as the under-application. You know what the under-application is? What I would call curbology. You know what curbology is, right? Parent drives up to the curb of the church, drops the kid off, comes back an hour and a half later in hopes that Adam and Jacob and Trevor have made them better kids. Let the church do it. So that fathers and parents abrogate their responsibility and don't apply, underapply this passage with respect to the responsibilities that it gives parents. All to say, this passage must be understood and applied appropriately and correctly. It doesn't have anything about teaching arithmetic at home. and has nothing about dropping your kids off at the curb of the church and letting the youth pastor or the pastor make them godly. We need to understand this, and we have to understand it in its context. And in its context... It had to do with the passion that Moses had that he was instructing this new generation. Remember, the old generation had died out because they'd been disobedient. Moses was not going to get to go into the land because he had been disobedient. He's about to send this new generation across the Jordan in to inhabit the land. The book of Numbers, as we talked about this morning, was, was intended for everyone to line up in their tribe so that it was a staging place so that everyone would go into the land and be able to inhabit the places that God had given them. As Moses is instructing this generation, he is deeply afraid. This will show up later in Deuteronomy. And he has a fear that this generation will presume on God to say, we've got the blessing of God, we've now inherited the land, we're done, cross the finish line, race over. His passion then is translated into this idea, you must pass the baton on to the next generation. Fathers, and by implication, mothers. This is about family discipleship. I want us to look at that more intensely and discover together three ways to understand family discipleship. Three ways to understand this concept of the family discipling, nurturing, maturing the family. First is in the first part of verse 7. This is a mandate. This is the command, the mandate of family discipleship. Moses says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Now, let's get some orientation. Who is the you? It's the the men that he's addressing. Who is the them? The them, what are the them? The them are the statutes and commandments and ordinances that he's been explaining for the previous five chapters. The effort is diligence, and the object there is your sons. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. The obvious implication in this passage is he's talking to fathers because that's who they would trace your sons back up to, right? Let's break that down a little further. The method of this discipleship is teaching. The word teach there is, is really a compound Hebrew concept. Teach diligently. It's the same uh, linked 
concept. And, and it translates one word, teach diligently, that means to repeat. Say again. Say over and over and over. Follow up. Recite and repeat. When I looked at the uh, Hebrew dictionary for this word, it was a big, long paragraph, and I think I counted 11 times it used the word repeat. So can I just say something to the students? If you ever think, and if you probably ever said, hey, I've heard this before. When you tell your parents, this is not the first time you've told me this, you can hear your parents say, and it won't be the last. Because God has told us to repeat it. And by the way, if it's being repeated to you, students, it's because it needed to be repeated to you. You didn't perfect that part of your sanctification. You teach them. You teach by repetition. What do you teach? The content is Scripture. Now, let's spend a few minutes here. This assumes that parents had a grasp of what they were repeating, of what they were teaching. Now, let me blow your mind open to a new way of thinking about this command in context for a second, okay? And the reason I say blow your mind open is when I thought about this, it made me literally pause, take my, my fingers off the keyboard and say, wow. You understand that these parents were called to teach the commandments of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord, the regulations of the Lord to their children, and they had no Bible. You understand that? They had no copy of God's word. Which should make you say, how did they know what they were to teach to their kids? Well, if you go back into chapters 3, 4, and 5, you find out exactly. The law was to be read and read and read and learned and learned and learned. Can I, can I threaten all of our spiritual maturity for a second? They were to teach, these parents in this context were to teach their children the statutes, ordinances, and regulations of the God. Are you ready for this? From memory. From what they learned. Oh, sure, some people would have had some notes, but remember, at the time that this was given, they were nomadic. They were living in tents. They hadn't settled the land. This is mind-numbing to me that Moses expects that God's word would be known so intimately and deeply by these parents that they could teach it by rote to their kids. If that's the case here, beloved, how much greater do we bear in our responsibility when we have this? Those to whom much is given... Wow, is much required. The content is scripture. Teach them to your sons. The them is all the commandments. I mean, let me just ask you kind of a, a brutally painful question. Do, do you have the Ten Commandments memorized? Do, do you know them? Do you know what God expects out of the Ten Words of Moses? We spent you know, several months in Ten Commandments. Do you? Could you list them? Do you talk about them? Is this the stuff of conversations with your spouse, with your kids? And that's just 10 regulations. For us, let's shift over to the New Testament for a second. 
the them is the statutes, ordinances, revelation of God, what God is like, what he expects. And that's contained in the Older and Newer Testaments, right? So what does that mean and imply for you and for me? Well, much is given, much is required. We are responsible to know and teach this to our kids. As a church, we are to know and teach this to kids who don't have parents who are doing this. There is a sense in which God has given this to us and said to us very specifically, I expect you, older, more mature, to know this well enough to teach it to my children, God's children, in such a way that the message is reproduced. Why? Because it's repeated and repeated and repeated again. This puts a massive uh, onus on us to be theologians. Mom, Dad, eye contact. Can I have it just a second? Every parent is called by God to be a theologian. Every parent is called by God to be pastoral. Every parent is called by God to be an expositor and an explainer and an applier of God's word. Footnote. Does that mean that other people don't teach scripture to our children? Praise God, no. Because one of the most frightening things in the Bible is that it's Luke 6, a disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like who? Like his teacher? I am so glad that God has other teachers besides just me in my son's life. You know, there was a certain author who a few years ago wrote a book about America and said it takes a village. You may have heard of that book. That's actually just a hijacked idea. It really takes a church. The idea is that God has given older women and older women, uh, older women and older men the responsibility to then train younger men and younger women to do what they're supposed to do in their roles, in their goals, in their knowledge to pass that on to the subsequent generations. Now, the object as children. We have largely found ourselves in a day in which we have relegated, abrogated, abandoned, neglected, pick your word, the theological education of our children to someone else. Now, let's have another footnote. It is good that we have youth leaders. It is good that we have children's teachers. It is good that we have college leaders and disciplers and they go off to colleges and have campus leaders. That's praise God for that. But that's extra on top of what we're to be doing as parents. And remember this. If these students are doing their ministries correctly, we should see an influx, junior hires, high schoolers, collegians, we should see an influx of those People to whom they minister to and evangelize come into our church who have no parents who can do this and we get to pick up that slack in the church. One way to look at it is like this. For, for, for some people, what you and I do in church ministry, for some students, for some kids, it's a vitamin. You say, what do you mean a vitamin? Well, it's not the whole meal. It's just a supplement because they're getting real meat and real theology and real discipleship at home. But for others who may not have it at home, this instruction that we give in the context of the church is the meal. 
God intended, this is kind of an odd notion, God intended for the first and foremost pastoral oversight of our children to be, drum roll, the parents. Do you know what your kids believe? Have you fallen into the trap? Have you believed the lie to think that our kids are in this beautiful, blissful mindset of neutrality in which they're just sitting ready for us to drop pearls of wisdom and theology in their life and that will advance them. And when we're not doing that, they just stay locked and loaded and in that position and never, ever, ever regress. Is, is that your default mindset? Do you, do you believe in the devil? Do you, do you believe that he wants our kids theologically trained and advanced and equipped? Do you believe he's working every angle possible to get them to disbelieve or believe the wrong things? Trust me, he, he is. Let me ask you again, do you know what your kids believe? Do you care? Or have you, in some sad and unintended sense, succumbed to the concept of curbology? where you say, well, well, we'll send the kids to church. We'll send them to the children's program. We'll send them uh, to youth camp, and, and that will be their God infusion, and I'll just feed them and clothe them. It's the exact opposite of what's being commanded here in Deuteronomy 6. By the way, when you're teaching the Scripture to your children, this presupposes that they respect what you believe because they respect how you live. I mean, is that an ouch moment for you? It is a very frustrating thing, trust me, after spending almost three decades with students in student ministry. It is a very frustrating thing for a kid to be called to a standard that he or she is trying to live at and which they evaluate their parents as negligent in. It's a very difficult thing when kids are trying to live at a higher spiritual and biblical standard than mom and dad. Do we live lives they respect enough to know what pillars go into informing that life. Are your standards the same for yourself and for your kids? You know, kids are not experts at a lot of things. Can I tell you what they are A plus, grade 10, high-end experts at? Sniffing out hypocrisy. Let me give you maybe the, the most insightful and difficult assignment I could give any of us as parents. Take your kid out to coffee or soda or pop or Coke, whatever we call it. Take them out for pie, Bob likes pie. Look across the table at them and say, give me a description of my spiritual walk with the Lord? How, how would they view that? Is God a part of our life? Or is Jesus the point of our lives? Is God something we do on Sundays and the rest of the week is for other things? How would they evaluate that? Here's a question. Do we have standards of what we'll do or say or even watch depending on whether the kids are around. 
uh, let me tell you, this is a... This has been brought home to me, and this is probably a public confession. I hope I'm qualified to be a pastor after I tell you this. But I am now on my second son teaching them how to drive. When you're in the process of teaching a kid to drive, and then they ride with you driving, you want to find out everything you've ever done wrong? Drive with a 15-year-old. You going to put your signal on, Dad? Well, yeah, I'm just going to do that. How fast are you going, Dad? Flow of traffic. How, I mean, you on and on and on, right? Oh, let me ask you another question. Can you, dads, especially dads, can you answer biblical and theological questions asked by your children? But before we even ask that question, can I ask this? Do they respect you enough to even ask? Look down at verse 20 again. When your sons ask you in time to come, saying, what do these commandments and testimonies mean? Why should we do this? Why should we obey God? They would ask that because they were being taught that. And the reason they could be taught that is because the parents were trying to live that. Do our lives provoke questions from our kids? Mom, Dad, why do we say that? Why do we not say that word? My friend says that. My friend watches that. My friend does that. We don't do that. Why is that? Why are we different than the world? That ought to be the question that Christian living solicits from children. Why are we so different? And you can look them in the eye and say, because we are strangers and aliens, and this world is not our home. And by the way, dads, it's okay to say, I don't know. You know my, one of my funnest stories, I probably told this 10 times, and I'll probably tell it 10 more, is when my son, he was younger than it was Luke, um, he, uh, he was asking me, he says, Dad, when you get to, it was on the old road, and it's called the old road in, in Santa Clarita. He says, Dad, when you, when you think of heaven, do you think of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. What's your, when you think of God in heaven, who do you think about? I don't know. Who do you think about? So why? Well, I, I, I mean, I think of the throne, but God the Father is the one we associate with the throne in Isaiah 6. And yet John 12, I literally said this out loud, John 12 Jesus says, I was the one sitting on the throne in John 6, saying, holy, holy, holy from the, the angels. And yet that person seems to be God the Father in Revelation 4 because God the Son, the Lamb, comes in Revelation chapter 5. And then you have Revelation chapter... Uh, you know what? You probably ought to ask mom about that. That's a, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's not okay to not be asked questions. Fathers, oh... Are we the biblical experts in the house? Do our kids know what we believe? Do they know why we believe it? Do they know why it matters? Let me scare you. Your God will be their God. Your definition of the divine will be their definition of the divine. Your view of the Bible will be their view of the Bible. Your understanding of salvation will be their understanding of salvation. Your view of the importance of church will be easily transferred and it will become their view of the church. Your view of marriage 
how it works, how it's associated with the gospel, will be their view of marriage and how it works and if it's associated with the gospel. The way you resolve conflict will be their way of resolving conflict. The tone in which you speak to your spouse will undoubtedly be the tone in which they speak to their spouse. The way you speak to your kids will inevitably be the way they speak to theirs. Come on, moms and dads, haven't you ever said something and while the words are exiting your mouth, you see them coming out of your mouth and you say, that's what my dad said to me. Of course, then moms curse. I mean, we don't believe in curses except for one. Mom's curse works. You know what mom's curse is, right? Ricky, one day you will have a son just like you. <laughs> Wasn't entirely true because I had three of them. <laughs> it's a mandate. Guys, men, fathers. We don't get a pass on this. Now, what if you're a little older? Your kids are up, gone, grown, out and about. You still don't get a pass. This is for another time, but Titus chapter 2 says, Older men are now in their older state with grown kids to disciple younger men in order that the younger men can disciple their children. We never get off the discipleship train, ever. Same for women. Same context. Older women are to disciple younger women. So the family, the immediate family, expands out to the family of God in the church in the New Testament. Well, how does this happen? Where does this happen? Well, let's talk about the context of discipleship, the context. Now, I didn't put the the sub points of this outline on, on this part, but basically it's everywhere all the time. That's the context. Everywhere, all the time. You command them to observe them, and, this is interesting, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. This verse talks about everywhere, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way. That's inside the home and outside the home. It means while you're at home, while you're away from the home, which, of course, includes all the time, everywhere. Discipleship never has a knob that turns off and turns off. On. The home is a great place for contextualizing what we believe about God into the context of the, what, what our kids are going through. School. You say, well, what if my kids in public school, private school, parochial school, homeschool, this school, that school? It doesn't matter. School provides un, uh, unending opportunities to say, what does God think about that? Athletics. What a great... I know a lot of you are in sports. A lot of uh, uh, your kids are in sports. Fantastic discipleship opportunity. I mean, do your kids... Have they learned... Let me ask it this way. What have they learned about authority from how you respond to the referee on the television on Saturday afternoons? Athletics teaches you to win and lose. And in real life athletics, I hate to tell you guys, those junior hires and lower, in real athletics, people lose and they don't all get trophies. That's, there's only one world champion. Um, I saw somebody this last week said, talking about our, our, 
our World Series. This guy from Canada said, well, you know, this is, it's amazing that the Red Sox won the World Series. If you included Canada and Mexico, it would be the intergalactic series and not just the World Series, so. You're watching the World Series, though. How many, do you see sportsmanship? Do you see not? Do you see character? Do you see arguing with the ump? I mean, ooh. What, what does God think about that? What does God think about that? Shopping. Moms, you have your daughter out, you're shopping. That is an amazing discipleship opportunity. Every decision that you ever make is an opportunity to say, what would God think about this decision? And from what I hear, shopping includes a lot of decisions. Entertainment. Ooh, entertainment. Have you ever walked out of a movie with your kids? Or do you say, ah, oh, this will be a good thing for us to discuss later? Ah, oh, Rick, you're being legalistic. I hope not. Legalism means you're trying to be saved by works. No one is ever saved by works, but everyone is sanctified by them. Work out your salvation. Is that clear enough? For God is at work within you. Entertainment. News and current events. Oh, some of us are junkies of Fox or CNN or whatever. When do you ever stop push pause, turn it off, and say, son, daughter, what, what does God think about this? Do our kids think that my dad or my mom complain more about our president or our Congress than they do that we pray for our president and our Congress? Let's just keep going on that one, okay? This presupposes, the fact that you're doing at home and and that presupposes two things, that you're spending time with your kids and that you're talking to your kids. Can I just throw out the, the obvious one, the, the bomb that no one wants to talk about but everyone's talking about? What do your kids think about sex? Is that being defined by a biblical worldview on sex? The Bible has a lot to say about that. Or is it defined by their classmates or their neighbors? Or the internet. Parents, if you don't talk to your kids about sex, someone will. It ought to be you. Um, without going into detail, I remember uh, in, uh, one of my sons was in the fourth grade playing baseball. Monday night practice. Pick him up from practice. How was practice? It was great. What did you do? We worked on throwing from outfield to second. Great. Dad, what's sex? Why do you ask? Because Billy, who's the pitcher, Billy's going to tell me on Saturday at the game what sex is. Not before I do. So Saturday morning, we had that, the talk at Pete's Coffee over a hot chocolate and a blueberry muffin. I'll tell you about that talk sometime. But what was so sweet is that God gave me the opportunity to tell him before Billy did. Now, here's the point. I can't stop Billy from talking to him. You can't stop that. But you can be the primary source. Because, by the way, after Billy had that talk, Billy had it all wrong. And to think that that could have been my son's view of how God puts babies in the world... It's always, too. It's when you lie down, when you rise. It's, it's including the whole day, when you're asleep, when you're awake, when you're resting, when you're working. 
all the time. Discipleship is always on. Every subject of every day, of every moment includes, what does God think about this? Everything, everywhere, is to be seen as the classroom of God. I'll say that again. Everything, everywhere, is to be seen as the classroom of God. That's the point here. Wherever you go, inject God's perspective into that. That's the mandate. The context, everywhere, all the time. And um, as the leader, as the more mature, as the mom, as the dad, it's going to usually fall to us to initiate the conversation. I mean, I'd say, ask your kids. And students, ask your parents. What does God think about that? Government shutdown, what does God think about that? Uh, Affordable Care Act, what does God think about that? What does God think about our response? What does God think about the World Series? What does God think about college football? Does God smile on the Tennessee Volunteers? That's not a good subject for discipleship right now. (laughs) You know, sometimes it's really good to be deaf in one ear because you can pretend you didn't hear what that beloved friend said. Are you, or do you see everything is in the classroom of God? I mean, it's so clear everywhere, all the time. Sit, rise, all the time. Thirdly, let's look at the, the reminders for family discipleship. Look at verse 8. Very misunderstood text in the Jewish history. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is a simple reminder. Listen, it's the reminder to have reminders about God. It's a reminder to have reminders about what God expects. An Israelite was to constantly meditate on the ways his life, her life was regulated by God, his character, and God and his word the revelation of himself, his commandments. Later in Jewish history, as you know, this phrase was actually taken literally. People tied little leather boxes called phylacteries, and you'll see an Orthodox Jew uh, with these tied with a headband around their, their, their head, and it's a little box, a little box, and it has pieces of the law on tiny little scrolls rolled up in those little boxes, either on their forehead that hang down or on their wrists. And, and the idea was, and a very positive idea, that those get in your way a lot, and as they get in your way, it should remind you to think about the law. Well, later, though, it became a, a superstition. It became a way of showing off. It was a way of saying, look at how holy I am because I wear these little leather boxes. You cannot get God's word by osmosis. Having God's law attached to your forehead or attached to your wrist doesn't get it into your soul. That's not a, a viable syringe for God's medicine. The point here is not to tie up leather boxes. The point is to add reminders. The reason it was on the funnels of your head, that was the idea of wherever your head goes, that's where the law of God goes. The idea of it being attached to your wrist is whatever your hands do, that's where God goes as well. 
Everything that God says, everything that God is, is, is exactly relevant in everything we do all the time. You ever heard that um, distinction about, uh, well, we have different parts of our life. We have the secular part and the sacred part. You know, the part that's secular that doesn't apply to God and the part that's sacred, the part that does apply to God. There is no sacred and sacred, sacred and secular. Everything, everything is sacred. Look back over to chapter 4, verse 9 for a moment. Remember, this is early on in the reminder in Moses' first sermon uh, to the new generation going over to Canaan. Give heed to yourself. Keep your soul diligently. Be godly. Be about being a godly man or woman so that you do not forget. Here's our forgetfulness. The things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. So what he's saying, first of all, is you are going to be inclined to forget the things of God. Is that true and borne out in your experience? I mean, have you ever been to a great worship service, heard a, a really impactful sermon, gone to a camp, heard a great song that really blessed you, and then not two minutes after that experience, you are in a worldly mindset? The point is, have reminders, don't forget. And then look at the last phrase of verse 9. But make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Now, another footnote. This does not exclude mothers discipling their children. And it does not exclude granddaughters and daughters being discipled by their parents as well. The point is, your home is to have reminders of God and his word. Now, if, if you're like me, you, you would be instantly asking, does this actually inform the way I decorate my house? Yes. Yes, it does. Put verses on the bathroom mirror. Put verses on the television. Put art with verses. And Yes, that's exactly what it means. Put reminders around. Why? Because you're forgetful. And so am I. Can I have a quick word with, uh, with kids? Just children. You're probably thinking, yeah, give it to mom and dad. Well, let me ask you, are, are you, are you teachable from your mom and dad regarding biblical data? You might be inclined to say, well, my dad is this and my mom is that. And if you really knew what they were like, well, I probably know what they like because I know a little bit about what you're like. And you're like what the rest of us are like. You're going to find flaws in your parents. And all of us could tell you the flaws in our parents. The point isn't the flaws. The point is, will you, are you willing to engage your mom or your dad in a discipleship questioning ongoing relationship where you're talking about why God matters in this world and in your life. Will you seek them, your mom and your dad, as a, as a source for biblical instruction? When they, and when they come to a dead end, and they will, and then when they say, when they say I don't know, and, and they will, will you commit to pray with them and for them and study with them and say, let's find out together. What would the world think 
if Mission Road Bible Church had those kinds of families as the regular families in their church, that it was normal that we do this? And I'm not assuming it's not. I know many families, this is an ongoing, regular activity. Praise God for that. Praise God for you. But as Paul told the Thessalonians, all of us should excel still more, right? We cannot look at this passage without turning over to the New Testament for a moment. Ephesians chapter 6. Because there's a New Testament equivalent to this passage in Deuteronomy 6. And it deals with the children and it deals with the parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There's a lot of debate of what that means in the Lord. Does that mean only obey the parents if they tell you something that's biblical? I think it's actually more specific than that. Obey your parents in the Lord, meaning if you're in the Lord, obey your parents. Your highest duty as a child in your demonstration of your love for Christ and love for God is that you obey your parents. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. And he tells us, which is the first commandment with a promise. Remember what God said, that it may go well with you. And as parents, we love one and two. Ah, love one and two. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Remember that. Take out the trash. Empty the dishwasher right now. Ephesians 6, one and two. But the verse keeps going. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Parents, don't we know our kids' hot buttons? Don't we sometimes enjoy provoking them? You're grounded, and I love grounding you. You need the ride. And I love the rod. That's that's not the attitude here. Don't provoke your children to anger. But what's the opposite? Bring them up. Now here's the parallel to Ephesians 6. Excuse me, to Deuteronomy 6. Bring them up. Raise them in the discipline and instruction. Those two words are, the discipline means the, the, um, uh, the deliberate pursuit of biblical instruction and admonition, literally, and the encouragement, the commandments, of the Lord. Discipline, which means a structured way of doing this, and keep going over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter, well, we'll start in 2 Timothy 1. This is a pretty dad-heavy subject, isn't it? Pretty father-centric. Men, sons, grandsons. Lest we think that mom is relegated to washing dishes and clothes and has no spiritual impact on children. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. Paul tells Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmom and grandma, Lois, and your mom, your mother, Eunice. And I'm sure that it's in you as well. Isn't it interesting that the second pastor of the church at Ephesus was demonstrably and identifiably discipled by his grandmother and his mother. If that's not clear enough, what did that look like? What did this instruction look like? Chapter 3, verse 14. You, however, that's in opposition to the evil men 
who are going from bad to worse in verse 13. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Wow. He's been convinced of theological truth, of the truth about the gospel, and he learned them from his mother and grandmother. How long? And that from childhood, wait a minute, start right there. If we do the math, Timothy would have been a child either right at the time of Jesus or even before Jesus died. How can this be Christian instruction? Oh, oh you got to keep reading. That from childhood you have known the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, which we're able to give you. Look at, the, look at how this is phrased. This is wonderful. The bibliology in this text is remarkable. Those Old Testament scriptures were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You see that? The Old Testament scriptures make you wise to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Where did Timothy learn the Old Testament? From mom and grandma. Can we be honest with each other for just a moment? It's probably true that the greatest time and spiritual impact on our children is made from mom and not dad. She's the one who's most around them when they're young. She's the one who's most giving them correction and instruction. She's the one who is first probably asked, Deuteronomy 6.20, why? What do these mean? Why should I do what God wants? I want to do bad things. God wants me to do good things. Why should I do what I don't want to do? Is typically asked and answered first by who? Mom. A few suggestions. Make your family, your spiritual care group, first and foremost, not in um, opposition to what you have going to the church, but is your family a spiritual care group? Is it a safe place to be a sinner and to fail? It's a, it's a good question because if you're not willing to be admitting that you're a sinner and a failure, you're never going to be willing to say the gospel is the solution. If sin is not the problem, the gospel will never be the answer. Dedicate time and plan time to talk about the things that you're learning and questions you have about God and his word. One of the things I love doing on Sunday afternoons when I drive home with the, with the boys, what'd you learn in junior high? What'd you learn in high school? Really? What do you think about that? Was he right? Was he wrong? Was he good? Was, he, was it applicable? What are you going to do about that? I love pulling that out of them. Read together, study together, pray together, ask questions together. And fathers, we need to be aggressive and deliberate about being students of Scripture. Obviously, mom as well. Remember 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 1. Do your kids, and I'm not asking you to put on a show, do your kids ever see you and know that dad is a man of the book? Have they ever seen you weep? Men, or tremble at God's word? We should be the ones who look at our family and say, well, let me tell you what I've learned. We should be to our kids like curious children are before our Heavenly Father.
you're not going to believe what I learned about God. Because our kids will be excited about God to the extent that we are. Now, here's the good news. And when we're deficient and negligent of that, God's given us the church. He's given us the church. And we do this together. We're a body, hands, ears, nose, mouth, feet. So let me say it again. Your God, mom and dad, is the God of your children. Your commitments, it's the commitments of your children. Your theology, that's their theology. Unless God builds on it or corrects it, and he will improve on it. What's the takeaway? Talk. When you sit, when you rise, talk. Every one of us parents, now kids, can I talk to you as students? Every one of us as parents should be able to leave tonight and go have a cup of coffee or whatever and look you in the eye and say, I'm so sorry, I haven't done as much as I could. And we would all be right in saying that. But I want you to join us and say, me too. Let's all do better together at making our family a theological Cape Canaveral that launches us toward God at every possible opportunity. You know, I hear this text, I I read these things, and I'm so convicted. I'm just so convicted. Isn't it great, though? Well, I had a junior high uh, pastor who told me something I'll never forget. He said, it was a youth camp, he said, my favorite thing about God he said, is you can take 37 steps away from God, but it's only one step back. It's a great encouragement. Start fresh, start new, do something, get traction today. Why? It's mandated, not an option. The church will be healthy in the future based on whether or not we as parents are honoring Deuteronomy chapter 6. First and foremost, teaching them about the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we are, well, I'm humbled. I'm just, I just, I I preach this sermon, Lord, and I look at Luke and John and Mark and Kim, and I know they can say easily, that's great stuff, Dad, but what about you? And they would be right. Help us all to improve the way we serve you, the way we talk about you, the discipleship avenues that we pursue. Father, please, please keep us motivated. We understand all this is predicated in chapter 4 on the fact that we don't forget. And the obvious implication of that is we're all forgetful. So give us reminders. Turn our homes into signs that point to you, reminders that grip our hearts. I am so grateful for so many parents who I'm looking at in the midst of the sermon and thinking about the faithfulness that they have devoted themselves to now and in the past that has borne fruit in their children. Help us to excel still more. And use the church, use our church 
as an incubator, as a way that we who have kids who are teens and younger can learn from those who've already gone through this stage of life. Both those who've done it well and those who've learned from mistakes. Use this body to encourage the body. For your glory, Lord, and Father, for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>